the Bible is filled with fascinating stories. As we said last week, not all of them are easy to understand, and some are just strange. But I'm convinced they all work together to tell God's bigger story, the story of His Son, the story of redemption, the story of Jesus. Last week we talked about a city council meeting gone bad, where a man named Korah called out Moses and it went downhill from there. Eventually, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his 250 co-conspirators and all that appertained unto them. It's a great story. But more than a story, it's an actual historical event. Chara Donahue is a freelance writer who penned the article that caught my eye. It was called Ten Unpreached Sermons. It spoke of ten stories in the Bible that are never preached on because they're too obscure, too random, too strange. So I've accepted the challenge, and last week we began a new series called Ten Unpreached Sermons. I'll use her topics, I'll use her titles, and I'll preach them in the order that she listed them. Now, I do not do this flippantly. I don't do this facetiously. I I do it because I believe they're in the Bible for a reason. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means God-breathed. So all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect. That the man of God may be complete. That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Chara Donahue's title for the second of the ten unpreached sermons is the loss of a sword for the death of a king. Our story today requires some backfill. You can can turn to Judges chapter 3. And uh, I've been reminded by several people that the Packers and the Vikings play today. (laughs) I'll, uh, I'll just let you know that so far we're on schedule. And I I thought that was hilarious, what you said about the Packer fans taking themselves seriously, Matt. It didn't get a proper response, I think. But I want you to know that I appreciate it. Uh, So yeah, so today requires some some backfill here, and you're in Judges 3, but in your mind, uh, would you recall with me our previous series? It was the story of the life of Joseph. We called it Bloom Where You're Planted. Go back with me, if you will, just a bit. Joseph, if you remember, rose in power during a time of famine. And he brought his family from Canaan to Egypt so that he could provide for them. Over time, a generation passed. The Hebrew people were becoming a threat and a bother to the Egyptian pharaoh who knew not Joseph. 
The answer for the Egyptians was to oppress and enslave the Hebrews. After 400 years of said slavery, God raised up Moses. And Moses led the exodus of the Hebrew people out of Egypt into the wilderness of Sinai. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses died. And Joshua led the people from the wilderness into the promised land. Then Joshua died, which began a period of almost 500 years where the Israelites were ruled by a succession of 16 judges. This was before King Saul, before King David. And it's the period of Israel's history where we find ourselves for part two of our ten unpreached sermons. Now, unless you're an astute Bible scholar, there are some obscure judges that most would never remember, like Shamgar, Tola, and Ablon. Now, others of those 16 judges are more recognizable, like Deborah, or Samson, or Gideon. There was 16 in all, and they ruled during some very tumultuous times. During the period of the judges, there was a distinct pattern that emerged. Israel would serve the Lord. Then they would fall into sin and idolatry. Israel would be oppressed by a neighboring country. Israel would cry out to God. God would raise up a deliverer. Israel would be delivered. And then they would serve the Lord. Then they would fall into sin and idolatry. They would be oppressed. They would cry out to God. God would send a deliverer. Now the beginning of the cycle is evident in Judges 3, beginning in verse 5, where it says, The children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. The Israelites served the gods of the people of the land of Canaan. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the land of Chushan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathium eight years. The Israelites had moved into Canaan, and instead of influencing the land, the land influenced them. How about you? Do you influence your world? Or does your world influence you? Work, home, school, the neighborhood? Instead of being a, a beacon for God, and instead of being a beacon for righteousness, the Hebrew people were overcome with evil. Soon they found themselves in bondage to the Canaanites. Eventually, they remember their roots. They hearkened back to the day when 
God was among them. When they communed with Him and trusted Him at every turn. And their heart began to long for that. So they cried out to Him. And God heard their cry. God always hears the sincere cry of those who need Him. Verse 9 says, of Judges 3, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Listen to verse 10. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Do you realize that the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible? This is long before the book of Acts. We're talking the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua leads them into the promised land. Seventh book, the book of Judges, way back, way back into the, the, the beginning of the Old Testament. And here it says in verse 10 of Judges chapter 3, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. Spirit of the Lord didn't come into being in the book of Acts. The Spirit of the Lord was alive and well. Way back here in Judges chapter 3. And, and, and they went out to war. It says in verse 10, the Lord delivered Chushan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishathium. I don't know why they always have to say it twice. You make it through successfully once. <laughs> Verse 11, And the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. So Othniel was the first of those 16 judges. He was sent by God to deliver the Israelites from oppression and servitude. Sadly, it's not the end of the story. Unfortunately, the, the cycle has a way of repeating itself through the generations. The country was peaceful, according to verse 11, for, for 40 years. It's a long time. People can lose appreciation over the decades. We can forget how bad it was. We, we tend to forget how we got here. I'll cite the United States of America as an example. Complacency, you see, does not bring out the best in us. We tend to let our guard down. We tend to leave ourselves open to sin. Verse 12, And the children of Israel did evil again. Key word, again. The children of evil, Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered unto himself the children of Ammon and Amalek. And they went and they smote Israel. And they possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. The cycle began to play itself out again. Israel had rest for 40 years. They drifted into idolatry of some sort. They were oppressed then by Eglon, king of Moab. After 18 years of oppression, 
At the hands of the Moabites and their domineering king Eglon, they finally cry out to God in repentance. 18 years of suffering, 18 years of heartache, 18 years of pain and oppression. They lost potential. They lost lives. They lost meaning. They had to focus on survival instead of accomplishing all that God had created them to do. Oh, how Israel regretted drifting from God. And while the consequences of their choices took their toll, God never gives up on His people. Do you hear me, church? God never gives up on His people. The consequences, the, the oppression, all served to drive them to their knees. And they began to look for the real answer. And when they finally call out to God, He hears. And here begins the story of the loss of a sword for the death of a king. Verse 15 says, But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, a Benjaminite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present or a tribute unto Eglon, the king of Moab. How many? Raise your hand if you're left-handed. Interesting. Uh, they say it's less than, than uh, one in ten is, is left-handed. Uh, so our two main characters are now in place. Ehud is our hero, He's the second judge of Israel and the God-ordained deliverer of Israel. Eglon, they both begin with E. I know it gets a little confusing here. Stick with me. Eglon is the evil Moabite king and the oppressor of the people of God. The Bible, by the way, mentions a few left-handed people, all oddly enough, from the tribe of Benjamin. And the fact Ehud is left-handed, is significant here, as we'll see. Ehud is mentioned all of eight times in the Bible, and all in this one stretch of Scripture. As judge of Israel, he's the lead ambassador among the entourage that would bring the yearly tribute to King Eglon, and this would be done with some ceremony. But he, he has something up his sleeve. Or shall we say in this case, something down his pant leg. Verse 16 says, Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he girded it under his raiment on his right thigh. And he brought the present, the tribute, to Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon, the Bible says was a very fat man. Hey, I'm just reading. <laughs> Eglon, whose name means little calf, there's a reason these are unpreached sermons. 
was the cruel and demanding king of Moab who banded with neighboring desert tribes, the, the uh, Amalekites and the Ammonites, to seize portions of Israeli territory after the death of Othniel, which left Israel in a weakened state. For 18 long years, Eglon tightened the screws on Israel. He, he imposed heavy tributes or, or taxes and oppressed the people in a variety of ways. The Moabites had apparently crossed the Jordan and built a summer home for Eglon between what was formerly Jericho, Jericho is no longer in existence, before what was, between what was formerly Jericho and Gilgal in what was known as the city of palm trees. Sounds nice. The house would have a large private chambers uh, for the king and a balcony that would serve to keep him cool in the, in the heat of the desert day. And this would later provide the way of escape for Ehud after his undercover assignment was completed. Verse 18, Judges 3, And when he had made an end to offering the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. Verse 19, And he himself turned again from the quarries which were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out of the room. So Ehud found a way to isolate himself with the wicked king, probably under the guise of a message from the Lord. Meanwhile, his dagger tucked against the inside of his right thigh, managed to make it through the metal detector. <laughs> and remember, he's left-handed. Verse 20. And Ehud came unto Eglon, as he was sitting in his summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly. And the haft, or the handle, went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly and the dirt came out. Apparently the dagger severed the bowel of this morbidly obese king and his entrails poured out right there in the parlor. The knife sunk in so deep, so deep into the rolls of fat that Ehud couldn't even pull it out. It's all there in the Bible. The loss of a sword for the death of a king. Verse 23, Then Ehud went forth through the porch, through the balcony, and he shut the doors of the parlor behind him and locked them. Verse 24, When he was gone out, Eglon's servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely Eglon covers his feet in the summer chamber. Now, I'm not sure what the Message Bible says for this, Nathaniel. But the expression to cover his feet speaks of having a bowel movement. When the door was locked, the servants and guards thought King Eglon was in the restroom. 
So they didn't enter the room, which allowed Ehud more time for escape. Verse 25, And they tarried till they were ashamed, the servants. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor, therefore they took a key, they opened them. Behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped into Syria. And it came to to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and before them. He said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. They went down after him. They took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. Verse 29, They slew Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty, that's right, lusty men, all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years. After the deliverance of, of Ehud, the land of Israel experienced peace for 80 years. This was the longest period of peace for Israel recorded in the Bible. And while it was long and glorious, the the cycle would run its course again. Verse 31, After him, after Ehud, Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew the Philistines, 600 men with an ox goad, he also delivered Israel. In fact, the cycle would play out again and again through the time of the judges and beyond. Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is oppressed. Israel cries out to God. God raises up a deliverer. Israel is delivered. And Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is oppressed. Israel cries out to God. God raises up a deliverer. Now it's easy for us to look at Israel and be disgusted with their repeated unfaithfulness to God. The problem is, we're every bit as guilty. We run the same tragic cycle. Silence, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, silence, sin, servitude. We prosper, which causes us to drift from God. Then we become vulnerable to temptation and sin. We slip into bondage and addiction. We cry out to God. He delivers us. Then we prosper, which causes us to drift from God. We become vulnerable to sin and temptation. We slip into bondage and addiction. The loss of a sword for the death of a king. What's what's the lesson here? I asked God that. And here's, here's what I believe he impressed upon my heart. Three things. Number one, Eglon means little calf. The Bible says he was fat. It doesn't mince any words. It doesn't say... It doesn't say he was overweight. It says he was fat. It doesn't say he was sturdy. It doesn't say he was a little 
hefty. It doesn't even say he was a large man. It doesn't say he was portly. It doesn't say he was rotund. It just says Eglon was a very fat man. Now with apologies to those who may be overweight in our midst, knowing this may not be true of you, I think the message for us is to guard against spiritual laziness and inactivity. Now one way to prevent the tragic cycle of sin from playing out in, repeatedly in our life is to remain sharp and diligent. We do that by staying connected. We do that by remaining in fellowship. We do that by being on the cutting edge of ministry. We cannot get lazy and expect to avoid all the trappings of the world. We have to be spiritually on our game. The correlation with Eglon is the physical one. If you want to be in shape, you cannot be lazy and you must be active. It doesn't just happen because you want it to. And it doesn't just happen because you're a nice person. There are lots of nice people who are really out of shape. And there are lots of nice people who have drifted from the Lord and are now lost somewhere in that cycle of sin. The correlation is physical formation and spiritual formation. We must be in good shape spiritually. We must be active spiritually. Number two, the dagger was a sword of sorts. Ehud's sword, I believe, pictures the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 tells us to take the sword of the Spirit. That's the terminology from Ephesians 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Just like Ehud's sword, by the way. It says very specifically, a two-edged dagger, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. And the Bible, it says in, in Hebrews, the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ehud used a sword to fight his way to freedom. He used his sword. That was, it was his instrument. It was his weapon that led to his deliverance and his liberation. I believe, church, I believe the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is your hope for deliverance and freedom too. I believe you are wise to start every day in the Word of God. I know it's hard. I know that it takes discipline. But I also believe with a little determination and with a little intentionality, you can do it. How do you do it? Here's my practical advice for you. Set your alarm 30 minutes earlier than usual. Get up when it goes off and begin your day in the Word of God. It's like strapping the Word of God to the inside of your right thigh at the beginning of the day. Psalm 63, 
Verses 1 and 2 says, O God, Thou art my God. Early in the morning, the psalmist said, will I rise up and seek Thee. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Your power. To see Your glory. So as I have seen it in the sanctuary. Early in the morning, the psalmist said, will I rise up and seek You. I mean, you can read your Bible at night. But the day is behind you. You're asking God to to bless your mess as opposed to looking to Him for direction and wisdom as it's about to unfold. It's It's getting into the right frame of mind before instead of after. The loss of a sword for the death of a king. The first lesson is to do what it takes to be in shape spiritually. The second is to sharpen your sword every morning to strap the Word of God to the inside of your right thigh as you begin your day. And third, the third lesson that I believe the Lord breathed into me was that he was about had to do with the fact that Ehud was left-handed. Being left-handed is rare. 7 to 10% they say, are are left-handed. It's even more rare in the annals of Scripture. He was different. Ehud was different. And God used what was different about him to make a difference. Eglon would not be expecting Ehud to pull a knife with his left hand. God used something individual to Ehud to bring glory and honor to his name. He did the same thing with Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, you remember, was short. So we made fun of fat people, now we're making fun of short people. (laughs) So, Zacchaeus, you remember, Luke 19, lived along the route where Jesus was coming, but his height, or lack thereof, prevented him from seeing the Savior. So what did he do? He climbed into a tree so he could see above the crowd. It was there in the tree that Jesus noticed him. His his individual quality or characteristic in the end is what made him stand out to Jesus. I think that's a valuable lesson for you and a valuable lesson for me today. You know, whether we realize it or not, we work really hard to be like everyone else. We work really hard to conform. We wear the same fashions. We have the same hairstyle. When in fact, God wants us to use our individuality. Ehud was left-handed. Zacharias was short, or Zacchaeus was short. Good. So what? There are no limitations upon those within the kingdom of God. We have an all-powerful God who can do anything. We have... Uh, uh, a Holy Spirit that we read about in, in chapter 10 of Judges 3 who can empower us beyond our wildest imaginations. We have a Savior named Jesus who has gone before us to show us the way to be the example for us to follow. What's unique and different about us becomes our advantage. Why not embrace What makes you different? God didn't make a mistake 
when he made you. Young people, God didn't make a mistake when he made you. College students, God didn't make a mistake when he made you. So let's remember our three lessons from the loss of a sword for the death of a king. The first is do what it takes to be in shape spiritually. Don't be fat spiritually. Second, sharpen your sword every morning. Church, I wish I could I wish I could emphasize this the way I want to. I wish I could find a way to say this that would drive the point home in a way that would impress upon you the significance of this. My fear is that we'll leave and nothing changes. Sharpen your sword every morning. Begin every day with your nose in God's Word. Begin every day by strapping the Word of God to the inside of your right thigh. And finally, let God use what's different about you to reach others. He didn't make a mistake when He made you. Would you pray with me? And as I, as I pray... We want to make an opportunity for you to be prayed for. I'd like all the Connect Group leaders to make their way to the front and and they'll be our prayers for today. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if there's one here today that something in this sermon resonated with them. Maybe you're among those who have have gotten lazy. That cycle just seems so real. Prayers, go ahead and come forward. That cycle just seems so real, so pertinent. In our prosperity, in our complacency, we don't really rebel, we drift. And suddenly we find ourselves somewhere we never intended to be. For others, we've neglected the word. Maybe that thought of rising every morning Spending some time in the Word of God really appeals to us. I pray this morning that the message would be enough to get you to change what you do now. And third, the, so many of us that struggle with what makes us different. We're so ashamed sometimes of the way we look or the way we act, the circumstances of our past, whatever it might be. I believe what God would say to us is, I can use it all. Zacchaeus was short, but in the end, that's what made him stand out to Jesus. And it was his house that Jesus came to for supper. Whatever it is that's different about you, that's what 
That's what'll make you stand out. That's what'll make you different. You won't blend into the crowd. You'll be set apart. God can use that. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us. Lord, I pray that we would be on our game spiritually. Lord, that we wouldn't be lazy, that we wouldn't grow fat spiritually, but that we would be in shape spiritually, ready to be used by you, ready to accomplish your purpose. Lord, I pray that we we would be in tune with the word of God. That, That would be part of our daily routine. We'd begin the day with the word of God. That we might enter into the work world, that we might enter the the school, the classroom, that we might enter the neighborhood, the marketplace, in tune with where it is you have us today, what it is you have for us to do today. Our mindset would be right because we've already strapped our dagger to the inside of our right thigh. Lord, take that, that thing that's different about us. I pray that we would embrace it. Instead of trying to minimize it, we would embrace it, become all that we can be for the glory of God. For the one that's here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, pray, Lord, that they would surrender it all. They would recognize that it's impossible for them to be righteous enough on their own. That they're like me in that only Jesus can wash away our sin. Lord, I thank you that you've cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I thank you that it's not by my own works, not by my own righteousness, but it's because of what you did. And so, Lord, I receive that today. The gift of salvation. It's not of works. It's not of self. It's a gift. I receive it from you this morning. like to be prayed for, make your way to the front as the, as the team plays.